Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Last week we spoke about putting on the whole armor of God. And we talked about the fact that every part of this armor is necessary for this fight. And so we're beginning now to talk about the different pieces of this armor. Verse 14 tells us what happens when we wear these pieces. It says that we stand or stand therefore. That is to say that we don't do the opposite of standing, which is fall or run away or cower in fear. I know we, we talked a lot about Satan, and I didn't do that to scare you or to make you feel as though there is no way that I'm going to be able to, little old me is going to stand against someone so great, so mighty, because he is great. He is powerful. But Paul doesn't tell us that Satan is like this so that we cower in fear. He says quite the opposite. He says, we should be prepared to fight because we can stand. But the only way we can stand is to put on the whole armor of God. And this is what this armor looks like. These times that we're tempted to retreat, to run away in fear and terror, may we not forget that we worship a mighty powerful God that we have spent so much time singing about and talking about and praying about even today. So let's look at this first piece of armor that Paul tells us to wear, to put on. And I'm going to describe it as how the belt of truth uh, allows us to fight, what it means to fight this fight. And the first way that the belt of truth reveals itself in this fight is it puts us on alert. The belt is a foundational piece of armor. (laughs) You might all think of all things to describe as a piece of armor, you probably never thought about the belt as a piece of armor. But think about it this way. Without a belt, you just couldn't fight. Because in Paul's day, people wore flowing robes. And if you tried to fight with a flowing robe on, you would be tripping and falling all over yourself. You'd be completely defenseless against an enemy. The belt was used to tie up. So you've heard the expression, perhaps, if you've ever read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament or different parts, gird up your loins. And the idea is that there's this flowing robe, and in order to prepare to fight, you had to take your robe, pull it up, tie it together with a belt, so that you are now preparing for this fight. The way to think of it is, um, if you've ever watched a World War II movie, such as Greyhound with Tom Hanks, and there's a, there, he's commanding a battleship. And when they see a, a, a Nazi German sub, there's a, there's a, they go over the screen, um, the, the intercom, and they say, red alert, battle stations. You know, and so you hear the, the siren going off, and everyone's running around. Well, that term battle stations is sort of the tying on of the belt. It's the same idea. Whenever you tied on your belt, it meant battle stations. Get ready for the fight. And so what Paul is saying is that a Christian soldier 
fighting a spiritual war prepares for this war in battle station mode by strapping on what? Truth. Truth is the means by which we say battle stations, prepare for war. And the big question then becomes, what does Paul mean by the word truth in this verse, in verse 14? We get an idea of what it means by the same metaphor used by Isaiah, which is probably where Paul is speaking from, Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, it's a key passage regarding the coming Messiah. And in verse 5, Isaiah says, and his waist, his being the Messiah, the Savior, and his waist will be belted with righteousness and his loins bound up with truth. That is to say that it's not just any old truth, but it's the truth of the Messiah coming to win victory, to win the war. The Messiah whose reign is coming. And so truth, the truth of himself now proclaiming victory over the earth. There's no doubt that when Paul is thinking about this imagery, he's thinking about a soldier in his day and him wearing armor and this belt that begins this foundational piece of putting on the armor that he's thinking back to Isaiah and thinking about the Messiah who for Paul means Christ. So we see this same idea then all throughout Ephesians, actually. Ephesians, whenever it speaks, Paul speaks of truth in Ephesians, there's a direct linkage then between truth and Jesus. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. It's so clear here. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Clear line between truth and Jesus. Another connection of truth and Jesus is actually Ephesians chapter 4.15 and 4.25. And specifically, it speaks about this one verse that so many of us and many Christians use, speaking the truth in love. Most of us, when we hear that verse, speaking the truth in love, that usually means I need to speak to someone about something that they don't want to hear. So I need to try to figure out a loving way to say what they don't want to hear and they need to change, right? So that's sort of how we think of this verse. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's be really truthful about your flaws, but I want to do it in a loving way. That's actually not what Paul's writing about when he says speak the truth in love. Because listen to the context of verse 15 where it says speak the truth in love. The context is verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 4. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now that phrase should ring a bell. It goes back to Ephesians 6 or forward to Ephesians 6. Because Satan has deceitful schemes. So here's what I'm getting at here is that the idea of truth, the belt of truth, speaking the truth is not, hey, this is what I noticed that's wrong about you. 
This is your character flaw. This is, you're not patient enough. I want you to know that I love you so much that I need to tell you about what you need to be more patient. You need to be more kind or gentle in your words. Again, that idea of trying to fix someone's character, the reason why it never works or it rarely works is because we've missed the idea of truth. See, it's not about love, but it's actually about what type of truth. And according to verses 13, 14, it's about a truth that leads one to maturity, that leads one to the fullness of Christ. That is to say that we need to have a deep awareness of how to help someone to grow, to appreciate who Jesus is, why he came, and what difference does that truly make in my life? Not what difference does that make in that person's life or my neighbor's life, but my life. And so the way that when we actually operate in that, on those terms, we guard ourselves against the deceitful schemes of the enemy. Truth then becomes talking more about Jesus, why he saved me, why he has called me his own, how I am righteous in him alone, and how I've been bought with the blood of the lamb, how that defines who I am. And the more I am aware of who I am and how much I've been rescued, trust me, then you can really speak love and truth into a person's life because you're never going in there with guns a-blazing. You're always deeply aware of, well, I, the parable of the unmerciful servant. How can we go around choking someone saying, you owe me? And that person probably owe, uh, was owed about $2,000, let's say. So it's a lot of money. You owe me $2,000. But what he forgot is that he was, he was forgiven $2 billion. So when we are more aware of the truth of who Jesus is, what he did for us, why that is so dramatic, how, how significant, how much better, greater it is than anything else that we have, only then can we approach someone. And trust me, when you do, you experience God's grace, God's mercy, and a kindness and gentleness that cannot happen without it. This is what we need, this type of truth, when we are getting ready for battle stations. We need to strap on the truth of the gospel. I love the way uh, commentator P.T. O'Brien puts it. As believers buckle on this piece of the Messiah's armor, they will be strengthened by God's truth revealed in the gospel. As a consequence of which they will display the characteristics of the anointed one in their attitudes, languages, and behavior. Do you see what difference it makes? The more you understand the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, it changes your attitude. It's no longer self-righteousness. It's humility. It's no longer a sense of, I'm going to point out all your flaws and faults. It's more of grace and kindness and mercy. So when we are getting ready for this battle, we know that the gospel, it's always intended goal. The truth of the gospel is to pierce through lies, deception, darkness, and despair. This is why Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 proclaim so boldly, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy 
the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, the fact that he paid the price for you to be God's child forever destroys all lies and condemnations of the devil. And that's what we have to gird our hearts and minds with, that truth. Not only, though, does do we get put on red alert when we strap on this belt of truth, there's an action to this. We don't just prepare for war. We actually fight the war. We actually fight battles. And so the belt of truth prepares us, and it actually helps us in battle. We need this all the time because the enemy, as we talked about last week and a few weeks ago, is that he's always looking for little openings in your armor, little ways, and it's all the time, unceasingly. So the fight is all around us all the time. If you're a student, and it doesn't matter what grade level, definitely in college, in university, in graduate school, so often there is a a real push to try to undermine our faith in the truth. But it doesn't start in college. It starts even at the youngest of ages, which is so much the reason why, regardless of what type of education your kids get, parents, if you are a believer of Christ and a believer of this truth, it is not incumbent on the church to actually instill this value of truth in your child. It is on you. And so we start at as parents to every age because in our society, in our world, and in a world where the God of this world is Satan, he is going to utilize every single word, um, idea, video watched, movie, TV show. And it's not wrong. I, I, I'm never saying, hey, don't watch anything with one curse word or with a, a, a smidgen of violence in it or anything like that. The reality is that's our world, but it's how do we interact with that? How do we process that? How do we, how do we think about anti-God ideas? It's not to avoid it, but it's to process it and interact and engage and wrestle with it. And so it is important for us to recognize. So for college students, your fight, your battle, is not only in the classroom, but in the dorms. For those who are at work, your fight, it used to be in the offices, but maybe now it's in your own mind as you're watching Zoom or whatever it might be. Uh, the, the fight is in the news media. The fight is in the pulpits. Sometimes it's in Bible studies. How do I know this to be true? Because Paul warns the Ephesian elders, this same group of Elders in the church, he warns against wolves, according to Acts 20, that are coming from within. It's important to recognize that some of our greatest uh, moments of weakness are inside the church as we're listening. And if we're not deeply embedded in God's word, it's so easy to suck in everything and think, well, that's okay. That's legitimate just because it's heard from a certain Christian author or in a church setting or in a, a seminary classroom. Listen to how Paul warns Timothy, who was also working with the church in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, he says this, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene, 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. There's that word again, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Do you see how the linkage is between truth, faith, um, the schemes, the deceptions? They're all tied in together. And when we falter in truth, our faith starts wavering. It never starts by simply feelings. It always starts by truth and our ability to process and understand. Paul also tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8 then, remember, how do we combat this? Look at what he says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's, you know, he could have said the gospel, but he said my gospel. It's, it's been owned by Paul. See, the gospel, it's not some esoteric out there gospel that's someone else's gospel. It's, it's been personalized. He gets it. It's changed. It's transformed his worldview. It's changed the way he thinks. It's changed the way he views life. And even though his sin nature, he's still struggling, as Paul says in Romans 7, but therefore there is no condemnation. It's, there's a change because it's my gospel. That my possessive gospel becomes a transformer of the truth that you believe in. And then it allows you to fight. But it really starts with, I lose the truth. The truth waters down the gospel. It's no longer mine. And so slowly... All these other voices, and most of them are in some way triggered and influenced by satanic voices, start overwhelming us. We start veering off from the truth. Just like Hymenaeus and Philetus, they start saying, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's no resurrection. There's no life. There's no power. That's why I do believe what Jack Miller said all those years ago is so critical. We need to preach the gospel every day. It's not just some little maxim, but it's to say that I preach the truth, my truth, the truth that I have now withheld every day to myself because I forget it. I don't forget it intellectually, but I forget it in my actions. Listen to what Peter says to Christians, to Christians, and this is really important, who are being persecuted in following Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, the word defense, verse 15, is that word apologia, where we get the word apologetics, the defense of the faith, right? And again, so often when we think of that word apologetics, it's this idea comes into our head that it's uh, having a debate with an atheist and you have to have an apologetic to defend your faith against atheistic rationality and reasonings. But that's not the purpose of what Peter is writing this verse to. There is a place, definitively a place for us to actually have a defense for 
the purpose of actually having an answer towards people. But the fun foundational purpose of apologetics is actually for ourselves, our own heart. It's not necessarily to try to convince someone because rarely is someone convinced due to our reasonings and our logic to follow Christ, no matter how well-reasoned it is. But Peter says, after you give a defense, and notice he says in verse uh, 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16, after you give a defense to anyone who has asked you for a reason of hope, he says, watch your attitude. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience for yourself, for your own conscience. Look at, listen to the purpose. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior. Peter assumes that when you actually have a good defense, it's not you're going to convince them and now they're going to become a Christian. It's when you are slandered and reviled. The result, and notice also the attitude. So you might say, yeah, but it's probably because you're really arrogant about it and just angry about your defense. No, Peter says, have it, do it with gentleness and respect. So you can have a defense, be respectful and gentle. And the result is when you are reviled and slandered. What does that say? That truth itself does not based on your effort, your mode, your reasonings, your logic is going to change someone. In fact, it could do exactly the opposite. And it happens throughout the book of Acts where they will preach the gospel and people will be enraged. Stephen, that happened to him. So the purpose of strapping on this belt of truth, speaking truth, knowing truth is not going to be to change someone, but rather it's going to protect us in this war for our own souls. And to recognize that it will get hard. Paul, Peter is saying, it's going to be hard. You're going to be reviled when you speak this truth. And you can be the nicest, kindest, sweetest, gentlest person, but you'll still be reviled. Do not be surprised because what happened to the Savior? Was anybody more kind, more gentle, free of even a hint of sin or anger or frustration or anxiety? No one. Yet he was rejected, despised, was led like a lamb to slaughter. Why is it that we always think that, well, I should, I shouldn't, if I act a certain way, respond a certain way, I should be accepted rightly. I should be somewhat, it should be convincing enough. No, it's not going to be the case. Unless the Lord opens hearts and minds, a person, no matter how gentle, kind, well-reasoned, well-thought-out you are, will never turn to Christ. In fact, they could go the opposite. They could absolutely reject you. Apologetics is to guard your heart against the schemes of the devil. That's why you need to know God's word. That's why you need to defend your faith, not against other people, but against Satan. That's who you're ultimately fighting against. And the problem is we tend to see things totally materially and physically, not spiritually. But if we read the Bible, we understand that this is first, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That is to say that your battle is not against college professors. The battle is not against that antagonist, antagonistic, atheistic neighbor who is always against you. Again, we always think on those terms, it's that guy, it's that woman, it's that professor, it's that kid. 
No, it is Satan. He is doing everything he can to knock you down, to turn you away from the truth. So we strap on the belt of truth to fight, to battle. Thirdly, you actually have to apply the truth application. Truth is not just meant to be talked about or to be intellectually pulled apart and stimulating your brain. Truth is meant to, um, to be trusted and believed. When we do not fasten it on, it could be there hanging, but if it's not fastened, then it's not a belt that helps you to fight this war. When you cannot fight, you can't stand. And if you cannot stand, you'll be struck down by the enemy. There cannot be separation between what you say you believe and how you live. And whenever there's that dichotomy, then we are not able to fight this fight. Whenever there's a difference, so that's why it's really dangerous when we try to say, yeah, the Bible says that, but I don't want to necessarily talk about the Bible. Don't quote me Bible verses. It's so easy to think that way. Don't talk about the Bible. Now, sometimes we misquote the Bible, so that's wrong in of itself. But at least we should be able to say, let's study, let's see what the Bible says. I remember taking a course in uh, college, not in seminary, but in college, a complete secular university. And I took a class called The Bible as Literature. It was an English class. And the professor, he really appreciated the Bible. He found it to be quite interesting. He didn't believe a word of it, but he saw it as literature. And so he respected it. He knew it. He could quote it. And there were many Christians that took that class. And he could, he probably knew the Bible better than many Christians. But simply knowing the Bible, even memorizing parts of the Bible, doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it, that you've held it, that it's yours. So there is a difference between respecting truth, knowing truth, and believing and living by it. If you have not fastened this truth onto your life, you will not have faith. Jesus makes that link so clearly in John 17, 17 through 19. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Do you see the link? To be a Christian, to grow as a Christian, to be a believer of Christ, and to be a person in this walking in the spirit has to be someone who has truth, and that truth is changing them. It's sanctifying them. It's making them holy. It's making them like Christ. It's making a difference. So what does applying this truth look like? Let me just give you a couple of ways. There are many ways, but let me just give you two ways. First, there has to be a settled conviction about the truth. Sort of the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, and I really appreciate that. And I think that's exactly right. He doesn't mean you never have questions or you never wrestle or battle but once you believe, once you fastened on the truth, it's a settled conviction. You know it to be true from that day forward. You don't have all the answers. You're still in this learning process. You're growing, 
You're changing, you're reading, you're studying, you're asking questions, you're, you're trying to be discipled, you're, you're trying to understand the world and all the different challenges of the world. But in terms of the truth, it's settled. In your heart, you've decided. That's why I'm so glad uh, that during this time where we're in the Old Testament theology class, I'm going to wrestle with, we're going to wrestle with some difficult questions. Questions of, well, we're going to do this next time, next week, which is, well, Joshua says this and Judges says this, but they say two seemingly contradictory things. How do we deal with that? I don't want to escape that. I don't want to run away from that. We need to, we need to tackle that head on. So this is not about trying to escape difficult questions, but there is a settled conviction in my heart that says, rather than coming in with skepticism and saying, I don't know if this is true. It's, this is true. Now let's tackle what that truth is going to be like in the midst of knowing that this is a settled conviction. I'm not there to try to defend Christianity against non-Christians. That is to say that for us as believers of Christ, we always know it to be true, his word, and we know that it's changing us. It's impacting us. And I'm going into God's word saying, oh Lord, no matter how difficult the word is today, change me. It's not the word needs to be changed. It's I need to be changed by the word. It's not, hey, this is what I believe and God's word needs to fit into my paradigm. It's no, the word needs to change the way that I see the world. So make it a settled conviction. Decide. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Sing that song and say it as though I, that's my life. And no matter what comes my way, I will still follow you. Far too many people today are writing on social media. I've, I've decided not to follow Jesus or writing or just putting on writing books and saying, well, you know, the gospel has changed. The church is so bad. There's so many things going on that Christians are falling. Christians are so evil and so bad. Therefore, I can't follow Jesus because he's not the same Jesus that I, I knew when I was a little child. And so why, why follow? You know why that happens? It's because we've determined faith to be rooted on something other than the truth of God's word. And if you place your hope in a person, get ready to really question truth. If you place your hope in a particular church, get ready to question truth. So we're not, that's not so unfamiliar. Listen to what, remember Satan? What did he ask Eve? Did God really say it was always to undermine the truth of God's word? If you even begin to believe the hint of disbelieving God's word and his promises, then that's the exact same question that Satan has brought to Eve and to every single one of us. Did God really say that? That's how a person fades away from the Lord. Did God really say? So recognize that the Lord's truth is what sanctifies us. It's what changes us. It's what helps us to grow. Second is that there's a, that scripture needs to be central. There's a scripture centrality to applying truth. We have to listen to Paul when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, 
for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe not so we can debate finer theological points. We believe because we know that we may be complete, according to Paul, sanctified, same word, same word that Jesus gave, so that we may be equipped for every good work, so that we can be changed and sanctified, and so that we can serve Christ and share his gospel to the world, so that we may be equipped for every good work. That's why it's so deadly whenever Christians say in any instance, we don't need the Bible here because we need more empathy. We need more pragmatism. We need more solutions. We need more marketing schemes. We need more strategies. We need more politics. We need more psychology. We need more business acumen. The list is endless. That is such the temptation for us as Christians because it's the devil's temptation. The idea that we don't need the truth. The truth is, yeah, yeah, the Bible is good enough for such and such an instance. But let's not talk about the Bible here. It just doesn't apply. We believe in the sufficiency of God's word. It applies to everything. There is no area of our lives where the Bible is, no, the Bible actually doesn't apply. In this instance, we really need a better marketing scheme. That's actually what we need to grow the church. Oh, what a danger that is. And so Christians always go back to the truth. And Satan always says, you don't need the truth. Did God really say? Remember that the next time we are tempted and we're all tempted to leave God's word behind. None of these battles that, um, none of those aspects, psychology, all those things that take on those aspects really, they don't battle Satan. They don't win souls. Scripture, the truth, is what helps us to win this war. So he wants us always to ask, not what does the Bible say, but what do I think? What do I feel? And be forewarned, when that is your first question that you're asking in a Bible study, in a sermon, in a conversation, uh, in, in dealing with issues of your life? How do I feel about the situation? How do I think, oh, we are in real danger? My friends, to strap on the belt of truth is not a call to dry intellectual faith. I hope you rid yourself of that idea. No, those who are most passionate about living for Christ, who are willing to go to the ends of the earth to die for Jesus, have often strapped on the, the belt of truth. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, they are meditating on the word day and night. So they're like a tree planted in streams of water. They, they do, they always prosper. The fight calls us to know. The fight calls us to act and mobilize. John Piper tells a story of B.B. Warfield, who taught at Princeton Seminary for 34 years until he died in 1921. And there was opposition against him because a group of seminarians would say, you know what, rather than a rigorous um, thinking about God's word, you need to actually be praying more. Forget about the Bible. Let's pray more. And that sounds great, right? Most of us would say praying more is always important, always. But this is what he said. He gave an address to the students with this exhortation. 
Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper meaning and deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response than 10 hours over your books on your knees? In other words, why not 10 hours of your books on your knees? That is to say, it's not, it's both and, not neither or. We need both. We should pray. But do not think that if we don't think or process or study God's word, that that's not that important. We need both all the time. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, in John 8, 31, 32, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word. Abide is more than knowing. Abide is knowing, believing, living. Acting. It's my gospel. I'm changing. I want to think differently. The world will not define how I think. My spouse will not define how I think. My children, my parents. We leave all that behind. Instead, the cross before me, the world behind me, as again, I've decided to follow Jesus. You know, I want to, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and the promises and you will know the truth and it's the truth that will set you free. May you never forget to know that Jesus gave you everything, his very life to set you free. May that be your settled conviction so that you can fight this fight. You can win in Christ. Let's pray together. I'm going to sing of that truth and that reality as well. Are you being sanctified by the truth? Is it your gospel? Jesus gave his life so that you could abide in him. And it is that truth that is our hope. It's a hope not just for now, but it's a hope for eternity. And when we know that to be true, we are forever changed. And no one can separate us from God's love. Not the most brilliant minds of this world, not an archaeological discovery that says they found Jesus' bones somewhere, not a friend who is trying to convince you that this, this Bible is filled with a bunch of lies and errors. May you find the power of the truth of God so that when you know the truth, it gives you power to fight and it sets you free. Father, I pray for those who are perhaps in a place of doubt, who's wondering whether you are real or true. I pray that right now what would come to mind is the work of your Son. We hear so often the enemy's lie. Did God really say? But we thank you that in Christ Jesus, he said everything that was needed to be said. He is the word, the embodiment of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And for those who are shaken, especially in difficult, distressing times, 
I pray, Father, that you would sustain them, cause them to see, to know how important, how vital it is to know what we believe and to act upon it and to decide. And may we always turn back to your word, remembering these wondrous promises. You are good to us, O Lord. We turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray.